Let's get to God's Word. I really believe God has a message for us today that's going to it's going to help you, help help us. It helps me. And so grab your Bible, turn to Mark, right? The Gospel of Mark. Can you believe we're down to only five more sermons from the Gospel of Mark? I am I'm 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 heartbroken. You can't believe it. I am uh, coming. Uh, I had to, I was on my rant with somebody this morning. I had to stop to come into service on why God gave us the Word, and we don't have to be all that creative. We just let the Bible speak. You know what? Letting the Bible speak is a whole lot more important than letting me speak, right? And so we just try to say, God, what do you got to say through your Word? And He gives certain people giftings in certain areas to help expound on that Word. And so that's all we're we're doing today is looking at His Word and letting it speak. Mark chapter 14 today, we're going to look at a section of scripture that, that you're really familiar with. We sing songs about it, um, but I think there's some things in here beyond the story that, um, or maybe inside the story, that are going to be incredibly practically helpful for all of us today um, as we look into it and kind of dissect God's word. So Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32, give all of you that your little... Digital things. I see. I should say it earlier, so you can type that in quicker, right? Mark fourteen thirty-two. Apologize for that. I'm trying to become more trendy. Put it up on the screen. We need to do that. That's one of our next steps. Good point, Gary. Here's the deal. Take it as an opportunity. Everything that goes on is based upon people doing it. Um, you don't. You don't build a church through hiring more and more staff. You fu- build a church through helping people discover their gifts and function according to their needs, and then being dependable. Um, you know, my wife said this this morning, and this is not a criticism, this is a reality. She goes, oh my goodness, I forgot to check my computer to see who's not going to show up today. Because she's responsible for everything in the sanctuary, all the volunteers. She goes, I've got to see who's not going to show up today. I said, really? I said, you've got to go check your computer for who's not going to show up today? And she goes, well, of course. You know what? What we have to do is we all find our place of giftings. And so when we have somebody who says, I really want to be the guy or the gal, to work on a team to develop and put this up on the screen to make sure it's done, and then run it, hey, we'll be ready for it. So God may be speaking to somebody's heart today that you want to do that stuff. So uh, commit to it, and uh, let God use you for his glory. Amen? Amen? Amen. Now you had time to get to Mark 13, 14, verse 32 on your iPad. Verse 32. It says, They came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here until... I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will And he came and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Gethsemane. That place where Jesus did his final 
preparations before he gave himself over to his arrest and his humiliation and his crucifixion and his death. He knew that's what Gethsemane was. He went there to pray in preparation. And what it says is he went there to pray to to prepare himself for what was lying ahead, which is going to be the most incredible, anguish-filled trial that he was ever going to go through in his entire life. And so he went to the Garden of Gethsemane with the eleven. Not with the twelve, with the eleven, because Judas had already left him at the Last Supper, which was just previous to Gethsemane, had left him, and at that very moment was taking part in a plot to capture and to kill Jesus. So he walks to Gethsemane, and he says what he did when he got to Gethsemane is he he left eight of the disciples just inside the gate of this walled garden. And that's what Gethsemane was. Gethsemane was a walled garden probably owned by some rich um, follower of Christ. And they went there to pray and it was, a, it was an olive garden because Gethsemane means the oil press. And so there was an olive oil press in the garden. And it would have been a walled, we have pictures of that in scripture, this walled garden. And he walks inside the, the walled garden, probably inside some kind of a gate. And he tells the eight to just sit there and wait. And then he takes the three, three of the other disciples, the three that were closest to him, and he goes a little further into the garden. And there he told them to do something. He says, keep watch and keep praying. Um, And then he went a little further and he prayed. And in anguish, he prayed because he knew what was awaiting him. He knew what was going to happen in the few hours and, and days to come. Now, I'm sure that part of the reason that Jesus was in such anguish at that moment Because he was concerned about what he was going to experience physically. He knew what, he understood the future as a son of God. He understood what awaited him. He knew that just in a few moments there was going to be arrest, there was going to be beatings, that there was going to be humiliation, and that ultimately there would be crucifixion. He understood what was waiting before him. He understood that he was going to go through the most horrible kind of death torturous, extended, painful kind of death that a person could ever experience. And there would have had to, as being this fully God and fully man, there would have had to have been this incredible amount of anguish that filled his heart. And that's what we see expressed in the other gospel that says he was so filled with anguish that he actually sweat drops of blood at this time. That the capillaries in his, in his head actually burst because of the stress and the anguish that he felt. And part of that anguish had to be because he knew of the physical pain he was going to go through. However, I don't think that that was the greatest anguish that, that, that was on his heart at that time because I think the greatest anguish for him was what would lie ahead for him spiritually when he took the next step and he walked out of the garden and he went to the next step of becoming the sacrifice for the sins of man. You see, he prayed when he went in the garden. He prayed this. He said um, that this cup would be removed from him. He knew what that cup was. That cup was talking about something basically he's going to have to drink. And it's a theme through all of scripture of what you'll have to partake in. And he said it was like he knew what cup he would have to be drinking. He knew that upon the cross he'd be drinking the cup of mankind's sin. That this one and only perfect man, the Bible says the only person that, that was ever born and lived and died without ever sinning that he would be doing something when he, when he went further out of the garden, that he would be taking upon himself the sin of the world, that he would feel the horror of mankind's jealousy, he would feel the horror of the hatred of all of mankind, that he would feel the horror of covetousness and the horror of violence, 
He would feel all the weight of sin upon himself, that he would literally take the world's sin upon himself. 2 Corinthians um, 5 says it like this, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he would drink the cup and and feel the horror of all of mankind's sin. And I knew that had to just create incredible anguish in his life. And because of that, because he was drinking the cup of sin, he would also drink the cup of wrath. He would not only drink the cup of sin for man, but then he would have to drink the cup of wrath. That was a result of man's sin. You see, as the sin bearer, he would become the object of the Father's holy wrath against sin. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became a curse himself for us and experienced the wrath, took upon himself the wrath that you and I deserve. See, Jesus knew the cup that awaited him. He knew what he was going to experience when he went to the cross. So in the garden, he in anguish prays that if possible, God could find another way. God, you've got to have some other way to do this. But then with unconditional surrender, he prays, but God, yet not my will be done, but what you will, let that be done. And he plunged forward knowing that what must be done in order to rescue mankind from the prison of their sins, he walked right into it knowing what he expected, an incredible anguish and pain. He didn't skip into it saying, well, I'm just God and it's going to be easy. He was under the greatest anguish that any person has ever been in in history. I cannot imagine that there's ever been a person who has experienced such extreme anguish at any other time in recorded human history because no one else has ever been the Son of God who knew what awaited him, who knew all the pain and the horror, not just the physical, but knew the spiritual. And he carried that weight as he went into the garden. And I hope that as we look at Gethsemane, we can really appreciate the unimaginable pain and horror that Jesus went through for you and me, that he went through so that our sins could be taken from us and put on him, and God's wrath could be taken from us and put on him, and that he could pay for it on the cross, that he could, he could literally bear it on the cross. Because I don't think we have any even human comparison to what Jesus went through in the anguish at that time. Now, when we look at this story of the anguish, We see something beyond the anguish. I wanted to start today by painting a picture of what he went through for us and getting us to understand that he went through the greatest time of anguish that probably any person in all of history has ever experienced. But when we look at this story, we not only get a better picture of what it cost Jesus to purchase our salvation, and that's why I've taken a few minutes to express it today so we have a little greater sense of appreciation for what he's done, but we gain something else we also gain some really important insights into, into going through our own times of trouble. You see, here's what I know about just spending time with all of you. We all go through Gethsemane times. And although our times of trouble may not match the degree of anguish that Jesus felt, that ours have been and are and can be excruciating, that our real life Gethsemane's cause us to feel the greatest anguish we believe any person could ever feel, that real life to me proves as I watch it and I live it, proves to us that we all go through times of incredible challenge and difficulty in our lives. We all go through trials and anguish and pain. 
And so I think not only is the story of Gethsemane told so we can appreciate what Jesus went through for us, but I think Gethsemane's story is also told so that we can learn from Jesus' Gethsemane experience, so that we can better walk through our own times of Gethsemane, our own times of difficulty and struggle. When we say, God, I'm under such a weight, I don't think I can go another moment. When it feels like to us that we're praying and we're literally falling out prostrate prostrate before the Lord and crying in anguish saying, God, there's got to be an answer. That he says, you know what, church, I know you're going to experience that. And he gives us the example of Gethsemane to teach us how we can kind of walk through that. What are some things from the story that I think we can learn to help us through our Gethsemane times? And the first thing I want is kind of look at it from a negative side. The first thing that I want us to understand is that times of trouble often tempt us to respond in spiritually inappropriate ways. Hear me today. Based on years of walking with people, based on years of going through anguish myself, that often times our Gethsemanes, our times of trouble, tempt us to respond in spiritually inappropriate ways. That's why in the story... Jesus told Peter to pray in order to keep from giving into temptation. Look at verse 38. This is how we normally feel. Jesus knew what we would experience in our temptations, and so he gave Peter instructions, because not only was Jesus going through temptation and anguish, his disciples were going through, they were getting a glimmer into what was going to happen. And they were suffering through it right now. And he says to Peter, listen, you need to understand something about times of temptation. Verse 38. He says, Peter, keep on watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That oftentimes when we go through difficulty, we are tempted to respond in spiritually inappropriate ways. And I have observed that hard times generally get people to err in one of two ways that are spiritually inappropriate. They either run or they reject. I want to talk about those. They run or they reject. The first thing that often happens to people when they go through times of trouble is that they run. You see, I can't figure out why people do this, but so many times when people face difficulty, they run away from God. They run away from God instead of running to God. And that's what we see the eleven did. See, by the end of this night, when they, that's in, it has the Lord's, they have the Lord's Supper, and then they go to the Gethsemane, and then the arrest is just at the end of Gethsemane, that by the end of that night, the crowd had come to arrest Jesus, and the, the eleven all ran and fled. They fled, and they hid. You see, too often, we are tempted to run away from God in troubles. So we stop praying, we stop going to church, we stop serving. We just say, well, I'm, tr- I'm having difficulty, so I'm not going to serve in that capacity anymore, and I'm not going to give of myself or my finances. I'm not going to spend time talking to God because He's failed me. And you know what? That church hasn't done any good anyways. And they run. That's the first thing I see. I see it happen over and over and over. That's why when somebody comes to Christ, generally the most, somebody that we rejoice and we celebrate, they come to Christ and they ask Jesus in their heart, and I always say, I'm happy about that, but I want to see in five years. Are you going to run or are you going to stick with it? That's what happens so often. So people run when the time gets tough. The second way people are tempted in troubles is to reject. See, they act like Judas did in this story. Trouble comes. 
Life isn't so easy. Everything doesn't work out as they think that it ought. And that's exactly what happened in Judas. He was committed to walking with Christ. But everything didn't work out the way he thought it was supposed to work out. He thought, I'm going to be raised with this. I'm going to reign with this guy. This guy's going to become the ruler. I'm going to become the ruler. And I'm probably going to become the treasurer of the ruler. And I'm going to get some extra cash. Because it says he stole from the money that they'd raised. That was his, that was his M.O. But it wasn't happening. Suddenly, the one who's going to rise and he thinks he's going to become a political star, suddenly starts talking about, I'm going to die. And they're going to crucify me. And he said, I don't like this at all. This isn't what I signed up for. And so they reject. They reject Jesus and they reject his lordship in their lives. And maybe we don't state it that frankly, but that's exactly what we do. We reject Jesus because we are unhappy with the events of our life not panning out the way we think they ought to. Jesus said it like this in another portion of scripture. He said it's, people are like a seed that is planted in shallow soil. That it springs up quickly but then when the heat of the sun shines on it, it withers and dies because it has no depth of root. In other words, when difficulty comes, they reject Jesus and they walk away. See, I've seen these responses over and over and over during times of trouble. So now that brings us to the second insight that we get from the story. And it's this. It answers how we should walk through our Gethsemane times so that we don't respond in inappropriate ways. So that we don't run or we don't reject. That we don't, we don't act like a Judas or we don't act like the eleven that ran and hid and fled in times of, of, in times of difficulty. Rather we somehow triumph and exceed um, what, what we ever thought was possible in a time of difficulty. And see, Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane gives us a path to walk on through our own times of trouble. It's like stepping stones that get us through the trial. That's what I see in verse 36. Look at verse 36. It's a recording of how Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. And it's, it, it serves as it's kind of like three separate stones that we can step on and walk through to get through the quagmire of anguish in our lives, of difficult times in our lives. Look at verse 36. It says, And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Let's look at these stepping stones that Jesus used to get him through Gethsemane. Understand, remember, that's why we put it in context today. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows the pain he's going to suffer. He knows the spiritual anguish he's going to endure. And he stops and he prays in preparation to get him through the hard times. Well, if he had to stop and pray and prepare himself to get through the hard times, maybe we need to understand that we need to prepare ourselves for hard times and we can learn from how he got through it so that that's how we can get through it. And so let's look at these stepping stones. The first stepping stone is this, to get through the hard times. We draw strength from our intimacy with God. You see, Jesus started his prayer very uniquely at this time. He started his prayer this way. Abba, Father. Abba, exclamation point. Father, exclamation point. He's saying, he's crying it out to God. Abba, Father. You see, Abba is a term of warm, warm intimacy. It expresses, uh, it's an expression that a child would use for his dad. It's saying, Daddy. That's what he's saying. He's saying, Daddy, instead of Father. 
And you can understand the difference when your child's in trouble and he comes to you and he says, Daddy, or he says, My father did this. There's a big difference. Jesus was coming to him in his most intimate way. Jesus starts his prayer in this time of anguish by drawing strength from his heavenly daddy. The one who was so close to him. The one who knew um, how to love him perfectly. And friends, we need to learn from Jesus here. This is maybe the most important aspect of getting through times of difficulty in our lives is to learn this point from Jesus. That in times of trouble, you need to settle in your heart up front. If you were had a Gethsemane today, you knew anguish was going to come tomorrow, you need to set in your heart up front. And let me tell you something, if you're not in Gethsemane today, there's a Gethsemane coming. You say, wow, you're a downer. No, I'm just a realist. There's Gethsemane's coming. It's part of life. You need to settle up front that God loves you. That's what he was settling. He was crying, God, I know you love me. I know it's going to be torturous, but God, I am convinced that you love me. You need to understand that, in fact, by nature, God is love. So that all he does or all that he allows towards you flows from his nature of love. And so many times in the midst of the storm, we say, God, if you really love me, you would change it. But Jesus understood that wasn't true. He calls out to God. He reinforces his, his foundation that God loves him. Friends, never interpret your circumstances to be the result of God not loving or caring for you. Because God cannot not love and care for you. Because his nature is love. He is love and he can only act in love. And so when you are his child and you're calling out to him, everything he does and allows in your life somehow has a root in love. And as a loving God. He wants to be close to you. That's what Jesus was expressing in this. His closeness to the Father. But there's a button here. There's a however. You need to understand something. I need to understand something. Some of you who are maybe going through your Gethsemane right now need to understand this. Understand that intimacy with God is developed before Gethsemane. The intimacy with God. Now you can, your, your Gethsemane can drive you to your knees and develop your, your intimacy and that's a great thing and that's often why God allows us to go into trials. However, to walk through the trial with triumph, understand that the intimacy with God is supposed to be developed before your Gethsemane experience through a daily ongoing relationship with the Lord. A daily ongoing prayer relationship. And I almost hesitate to put prayer relationship in there because when I say prayer, you think of kneeling down and asking for stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. See, Jesus could just call out to God, the Father, as Abba because he had a daily ongoing relationship with Him already. Friends, if you want to be able to draw strength from the Lord during the hard times, then cultivate a relationship with Him now when you're not in anguish. Determine in your heart to set a time aside every single day to just be with the Lord. Enjoying Him, enjoying His Word, singing praises to Him, talking and listening to the Lord privately. It's a relationship. It's not just something you go to when there's times of trouble. It's something you go to all the time that you cultivate and develop so that in the times of trouble you can really call out, Abba, Father. It's a relationship. And as it grows and as it develops, it is a resource for you in times of trouble. It's why some are tempted to run 
or to reject in times of trouble because there's no real relationship. There's just religious involvement. That's the difference. That's why people run and that's why people reject because there's not really a depth of a relationship. There's just an, just an attending to religious duty and, and obligations. And guess what? Nobody else knows that except for you. You can show up every week. You can memorize the Bible. You can serve in committees. You can do whatever. And you can be void on the inside. Because we can do a lot of that in the flesh. But Jesus offers us more. He says, you can have a real relationship with me. That goes beyond religious involvement. So cultivate the relationship now. So that you can draw strength for it in the hard times. See, that's the first thing that Jesus taught us. The first stepping stone of getting through the quagmire of difficult times. Let's look at the second stepping stone. The stepping, second stepping stone to get us through Gethsemane is that we appeal to our Heavenly Father's omnipotence. And I'll explain that. We appeal to our Heavenly Father's omnipotence, omnipotence, to His all-powerfulness. We appeal to His unlimited power and ability. We cry out to it. That's what Jesus said. Look at the prayer that He prayed in verse 36. After he calls out to the intimacy of God, then he says, God, all things are possible to you. Remove this cup from me. He calls out to the Father's all-powerfulness. Why did he do that? Well, friends, you do it because you build up your faith by reaffirming your belief that God can do anything. You know what you do? You revisit the biblical stories. Of all the times that God did seemingly impossible things, you revisit the time that He parted the Red Sea. You revisit the time that He knocked down the walls of Jericho. You revisit the time that He raised Jesus from the dead. You revisit the time that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. You revisit the time that He healed blind people. You revisit the time that He gives deaf people hearing. You revisit all those times. You remember just who this God is in the Scriptures. And then you know what you do? You take a step forward into, into your life. And you revisit the times that God did the impossible for you or for your family or for your friends. You revisit the times that that the cancer was healed. You visit the times that you get a note in church that says, you know what? Noah is doing great. You revisit those times. You revisit the times that, that God gave an answer where you thought there would be no answer. You revisit the times that a job was found when the world said there's no jobs to be found. You revisit the times when, you, when the child was born after the doctor said you could not conceive. You revisit all those, you rehearse them, you speak them out loud. You revisit these, you build up your faith in the God of the impossible. And friends, then based, on, based in faith, you ask God to do what you want Him to do in the circumstance. Jesus prayed it like this, He said, Father, you can do all things, now Remove this cup from me. I don't want to have to drink the anguish of sin and wrath. God, remove this cup from me. Jesus prayed this way. He said, for us, basically, God, heal this disease. Provide for this need that we pray. Say, God, do what only you can do. We ask and we keep on asking. And friends, that's a principle that Jesus often taught us. He said, ask, 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 ask. He always, look at all the scriptures. Look at John, take this afternoon and take John 14 to to 16, one of the greatest sections of all the Bible, and look at all the times that he just says in there, to ask. He's constantly telling us, he's the encourager, saying, ask me for what you want. He said, ask. So, we're stepping through the quagmire. We 
we, we rely, we go to that intimate relationship, then we ask Him for the impossible, but then we come to the third step. This good step that's going to get us out of the mess. Come to the third step, and it's this, to get through Gethsemane. Then we surrender to the Father's will. We surrender to the Father's will. This prayer is a model for us. Jesus prayed for deliverance. He said, God, you can do it all. And then he prayed. And he's not being duplicitous. He's not being schizophrenic. He's being, he's being proper and right. He then prayed, yet. Let that bug out of here. Yet. Where was my no one? Yet. Not what I will will, but what you will will. He prays for God, do the impossible. Then he says, yet. Not what I will, but what you will. You need to understand something, especially those of you who have a history in the Word of Faith movement, a lot of you who have a history in the charismatic movement, which are wonderful, great things that came out of those things. I'm a result of that movement. But you need to understand something. It is not a lack of faith to pray the prayer Jesus prayed. There is no one on the planet with more faith than Jesus had and has. It is not a lack of faith to pray, yet, I want this God, but yet, not what I will, but what you will. It's just the opposite. It is a statement of the greatest faith you could ever have in the world. Because faith that says, I think I know what is best for me in this outcome. I know what I want, but ultimately, God, I trust you to respond in the best possible way to my prayer. That's what Jesus is modeling for us. Even as the Son of God, He prayed, God, deliver me, yet, not what I will, but what Thou wills. It is the greatest faith you can ever have in the planet. So don't believe there's nonsense that says it's a lack of faith to say Thy will be done. It is the greatest faith to say Thy will be done. You pray, God, this is what I want, yet, Thy will be done. Because guess what? You're not always right, and I'm not always right. Suzanne, am I always right? No. There's a lot of times that I'm wrong, but I think I'm right. I'm convinced I'm right. And I find out later I was wrong. This is what this is all about, friends. It's ultimately trusting God to respond in the best possible way to my prayers. This flows from a deep understanding that God's ways are above our ways. And that we often do not comprehend what the Father's will and ultimate objective is in a situation. That often He wants to bring victory out of defeat in our lives. Take out all the defeat from the Scriptures. Take out all the failure from the Scriptures and guess what you have? Pretty much blank pages. Because you know what it is? It's a story of victory coming out of defeat. You've got to understand something about that, friends. If you don't have the defeat, you can't have the victory. If you don't have the struggle, you can't have the answer. And oftentimes God will, will bring us, will bring victory to us out of defeat, and that can't happen without allowing the defeat or the struggle or the trial or the Gethsemane to occur first. So like Jesus, we pray, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's a process of confident surrender that carries us through our hard times. That's what it is. It's a process. We draw strength from our intimacy that really needs to be developed before Gethsemane. But you know what? If you're in a Gethsemane and you really get, you don't have the intimacy, 
cry out to God. Draw strength from Him. But it's a process of daily drawing more intimacy with God. So we draw strength from our intimacy. Then we appeal to His omnipotence. He can do anything and we ask for Him to do it. And finally we surrender to His will. Stepping stones through adversity. And we come out the other side. Now did Jesus come out the other side without having to drink the cup of wrath? No. Did He come out the other side without having to suffer for the sins of mankind? No. But you know what He did do? On the third day. On the third day, He rose from the dead. Ultimate victory. He rose from the dead and He conquered death, hell, and the grave in ultimate victory. A lot of times we don't get what's going on in our Gethsemanes, but God's got a resurrection on the other side if we'll walk through it in a proper way. If we won't run, we won't reject, we'll trust Him, we'll walk through Him, we won't get negative, we won't be critical, we'll walk through it and say, God, I don't know what you're doing, it doesn't make sense, but I want to keep telling you you're my Father, I'm going to keep calling out for the impossible, but ultimately, God, I trust you, knowing that sometimes I've got to go to the cross before I can get to, to, the, to the resurrection. And we understand that the resurrection was glorious. It was the ultimate victory, and the ultimate victory wouldn't have come without the tomb. It wouldn't have come without the cross. And so we say, God, bring the great victory. Let Gethsemane bring me to victory. That's what he wants. That's what he's trying to teach us through the Gethsemane experience. And here's my promise. You will go through Gethsemane. You have already. You're going to go. There are degrees of Gethsemane. You will go through it. But we can walk through it in victory. And we can walk through it in resurrection power. Because that is God's plan for His kids. He loves you. And that's never the cause. That's never the issue. He loves you. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's pray together. Father, we find ourselves in all different situations. Father, some of us today are walking in times of incredible victory. Some of us today are walking in times of incredible adversity. We can't ever walk with a group of this size without having the difference. But this we know, that God, you love us. That God, you're the one who models for us that we should intimately come to you daily and then God, we should ask you for the impossible. And God, you love to do the impossible. You love to heal the sick. You love to give sight to the blind. You love to restore broken relationships. You love to do it. And God, you love for us just to cling to you through times that we don't understand what's going on. And so God, this is my prayer today that no matter where we find ourselves, that we'd be drawn more close to you than we ever have before. And that Lord, as we walk through difficulty that, Lord, the cry of our heart would be genuinely, Abba, Father. And, Lord, we ask that you would do what only you can.